I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's Paranormal Almanac, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. The first one is America's oldest cold case, and it isn't really paranormal at all. There is some paranormal theories that go along with it that I don't buy at all, but it's still a pretty intriguing story and something that uh, I think you might be interested in as well. And also, we're going over from that one to something that is definitely paranormal. But we'll get to those in a little bit. Because first, I want to tell you about my weekend. This past weekend, I was very kindly invited to AlienCon. And at first, I thought it was going to be ridiculous. I thought it was going to be overpriced. I thought it was going to be a a boring, semi-waste of time. There's going to be a couple of cool panels. The rest of the time, I'm going to be sitting there, you know, twiddling my thumbs. Let me tell you one thing. I could not have been more wrong. From the second I got my press badge to the second I left, I had things to do, panels to see, people to meet, stuff to buy. AlienCon, I am sold. I will forever praise AlienCon. You guys definitely need to check this thing out if you can, if it's local, or if you fly out for the next one. It was fantastic. Just to give you an idea, in the first hour I was there... I spoke with George, it was Aliens, Sukalos, Rami Romani, who is the world-famous Egyptologist, Mitch Pileggi, Skinner from X-Files, and I mean spoke with them. Sure, I had a press pass, but these guys were out and about, and if you were there, it wasn't that hard to stop them and say hi and chat with them for a couple of seconds. Besides that, though... I got to see some incredible panels. First and foremost, a story that I've been working on for a while that I want to get right, that I want to get all the details about, is Project Blue Book. I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I want to do an entire edition just about Project Blue Book. And the main man of Project Blue Book was J. Allen Hynek. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. I went to the History Channel's Project Blue Book TV show, they had their own panel there. It's going to be kind of like an X-Files take, where each episode, they're going to talk about a different case. Uh, It's a drama. It's not a reality show, but it looks fantastic. And it's dealing with the real cases also. Like I said, Dr. J. Allen Hynek will be portrayed on the show. It is going to be fantastic. And On the panel itself were the executive producers, the showrunner, and J. Allen Hynek's son, Paul. Now, I was lucky enough to chat with Paul after the panel. He's a fantastically cool guy. It was a lot of fun to chat with him. I got to say, when this show comes out, I guarantee you I'll be talking about it, and I guarantee you I'll be telling you guys to watch it because it looks fantastic. Another panel I got to see was the sneak peek of the new In Search Of. So the old TV show In Search Of in the 70s uh, was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. 
Leonard Nimoy went from basically went from Star Trek to hosting In Search Of. In Search Of is the reason I fell in love with Oak Island. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And a variety of topics like UFOs and aliens and Sasquatch and Loch Ness. This show had everything. Well, they're redoing it. And just like Zachary Quinto became Spock, right after he was Spock, Zachary Quinto is now hosting the new In Search Of. And I gotta say, it looks really interesting. It looks like it's gonna be an homage or a fun new take on that classic In Search Of. So I'm sure I'll be checking that one out too. I also... Uh, not to go too deep into this, I also got to go to the Chariots of the Gods panel, which was fantastic. Eric Von Daniken was there. He was witty. He was on point. He was smart. He was fantastic to listen to. And I was lucky enough to say hi to him. George Sukalos was there as well. He was fantastic. It was really interesting to hear from Eric Von Daniken why he wrote Chariots of the Gods all those years ago. All of his books, basically all those years ago, and what inspired him. And it was called The Book of Enoch, which I'm going to be reading. And if it seems interesting enough, I'll be doing an episode on that one as well. Like I said, this was a small percentage of what I saw in one day. While walking around, I got to meet Bob Gimlin from the Gimlin-Patterson Bigfoot movie. The footage, not movie, the footage. The footage that everybody knows I got to talk to the man himself. I didn't uh, get an impression one way or another whether he was a whether it was a hoax or he faked it, but he seemed like a genuinely nice guy, seemed genuinely cool, and I got to say I was really honored to meet him and chat with him and it was a lot of fun. So yeah, that was just a a slight sample. If you want to know more, you can always check it out on Patreon because I talked a little bit more about it on Patreon. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about it on Patreon as well. But I do have to say that I will definitely go back to AlienCon every year. They had Star Trek panels. They had X-Files panels. They had Lost in Space panels. They had uh, actors from Battlestar Galactica. They had everybody. It was an amazing thing to walk around and chat with like-minded people, believers. There were some skeptics there. I went to a MUFON panel. Hmm... Look, I love MUFON. I love the work they do. They're all volunteers. But I got to say, there was something that really bothered me in the panel. In the panel, each person from MUFON were introducing themselves. Hi, I'm the president of MUFON. I'm the VP of this chapter. I'm the VP of this chapter, Orange County, Los Angeles, whatever. And they'd talk a little bit about their experiences. So I was really intrigued. Oh, awesome. These people are from MUFON. Obviously, they're going to have some data or evidence to back up their experiences. So it gets to this woman on the panel. She spends five minutes talking about a seven-minute encounter she had with a UFO in Mount Shasta. She saw it clear as day. It was not Venus. It was not swamp gas. It was a vehicle. She watched it for a full seven minutes, losing her mind. And never took one photo. And this happened four years ago. It didn't happen in the 70s. It happened four years ago when everybody has a cell phone. And her reasoning behind it, because the guy in front of me in line asked this question. If he hadn't, I was going to ask it. Why didn't you take any footage? Why didn't you take any? Why didn't you film it? Why didn't you take one picture? She said, 
It was meant for her. It was a personal experience that she didn't want to take any photos. And then the guy next to her said, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the the electromagnets that run a UFO distort digital photography. That's why digital photography pictures of UFOs are always blurry, blah, blah, blah. It was crap. It angered me to no end that you're the people that want the proof the most, supposedly. You're getting all of the information from all the people that see all the sightings, yet you didn't take your phone out for one second and take one photo, or take your phone out, press record, and then watch your own personal experience. You don't have to watch the screen on your phone. Look up, look at the UFO. So, like I said, that really angered me. The panel kind of angered me as well because... It was a panel that was supposed to be about UFO encounters around the world. After they introduced themselves, they had people from the audience get up and tell their stories. And yes, that's always cool to hear new stories from people that aren't part of the panel. These are regular people that came to AlienCon because they have an interest in it. But I wanted proof from MUFON. I wanted proof from MUFON. I wanted to see videos that they couldn't debunk, photos that they couldn't explain, Real stories from real professionals, police officers, military. I wanted evidence. I was already there with my phone and the voice recorder turned on and ready to go. Nope. It was a panel of audiences telling their experiences, some of which I believed, some of which I definitely didn't believe. So that was the one negative of an overly positive day, a fantastic day A lot of information, and like I said, a lot of very cool, like-minded people. If you get a chance to go to an alien con, I highly suggest it. Now I know why it costs so much because of all the panels and all the press and all the celebrities and all the yada yada. It was worth it, is what I'm saying. So I have one more thing to talk about that pertains to alien con, but I'm going to get to that in a little while. Because right now I want to talk about shout-outs. I want to talk about Patreon. What you can get from Patreon, just go on there and find out. Go to patreon.com, look up Paranormal Almanac. You can see what I do on there. I don't want to spend too much time on here, but I want to give the shout-outs to the people that deserve the shout-outs. Daniel, Angie, Matt, Laura, Dill, and Laura, thank you guys so much. I love chatting with you guys about the Patreon-only exclusive content. I love hearing from you guys. I love the fact that you guys are supporting this show. It means the world to me. I have one more shout-out, and that's a listener shout-out to Talia. Talia, thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun chats with one of the listeners, Talia, online. I think she sounds fantastic. She sounds cool. She sounds fun. And she's an amazing artist that drew me a picture that I absolutely love. I'm going to keep it between her and I for right now, but I got to say it is a knockout alien pinup-esque photo that is fantastic, and I love it. Thank you again, Talia. Let's get into this episode. First up, we got paranormal news. Mothman sightings are back. A man in Chicago working at a place called the Owl went outside and looked up when he noticed something odd. He says... I saw a plane flying, but also something moving really awkwardly under it. It didn't look like a bat so much as what illustrations of a pterodactyl look like. 
with the slenderness of its head and its wing shape. I know what birds and what bats look like. This thing didn't have any feathers or fur, and it didn't fly like anything I've ever seen. It flew in a strange, swooping motion, undulating up and down. After it flew away, he retrieved his phone from charging in the bar. Hey, that's happened to the best of us. The second you need your phone, you don't have it. Unlike that woman from Mount Shasta who had it in her pocket and never took it out. This guy didn't have it on him. But anyhow, he grabbed his phone from charging in the bar, texted his girlfriend and close friends what happened. He says, I remember thinking this was the worst time in the world to have my phone charging. Well, you're right there. I also have to say the description doesn't really match Mothman in my mind. It more closely matches the Thunderbird, or a pterodactyl. But it's not just him, because in 2017, there have been 55 reported Chicago-area sightings. Yes, I realize that we're six months into 2018, but Mothman has been seen, or this thing has been seen, over 55 times in the past year. Now, accounts have varied from a, quote, large black bat-like being with glowing red eyes, Sounds a little bit more like Mothman. To a, quote, big owl, or something that resembled a gothic gargoyle, or someone just flat out called it a Mothman. Most eyewitnesses spotted the being in flight, but some particularly disturbing reports said that it was dropping onto the hood of cars, peering in through the windows, and swooping down at bystanders. So it seems like that Mothman story that really kind of wrapped up back in the day is back. Now, is this going to be another harbinger of doom? Is Chicago doomed for something huge or tragic to happen to it? Well, since most of those sightings were in the past year and nothing's happened yet, let's hope that that's not the case. All right, I'm burning through this episode and I haven't even gotten to it yet. So let's get right into this. In case you don't know about the story of America's oldest cold case, like I told you at the beginning, it's known as the Roanoke Lost Colony. In 1587, a group of 115 settlers from England arrived at Roanoke Island, which is off the coast of North Carolina. The governor of the colony, John White, decided to return to England that year to replenish supplies. Unfortunately, a major war broke out in Europe, and White's return to Roanoke was delayed by three full years. When John White finally did make it back to Roanoke Island, every last settler and every last trace of the colony had completely vanished without a trace. Prior to leaving Roanoke for supplies, John did witness the birth of his granddaughter Virginia, who also happened to be the first English child that was born in America. But like I said, he had to go back to England. When he returned three years later in 1590... The entire colony was gone, including his wife, daughter, and Virginia, his granddaughter. There were only two clues that they could find as to what might have happened. A single skeleton, the word Croatoan carved into a tree, and Croatoa carved into a post of the colony. Now, there are several possible explanations as to what happened, Some think the colonists found life too hard on the island and attempted to return to England only to meet their death at sea. Some think the colonists simply moved, though that doesn't explain the word Croatoa. 
Others think that the colonists disappeared during the Anglo-Spanish War three years after the last shipment of supplies from England. They were obviously running very low on supplies. Their disappearance, again, that's why it's called the Lost Colony. Now, there are other theories that they were wiped out by the Native American tribes in that area or that the Spanish destroyed the colony or that the colony ran out of food and integrated with the Native Americans. But we really don't know what happened to them. Except maybe we have known since 1937. Because in 1937, a 21-pound stone engraved with strange markings was found by a California man driving in coastal North Carolina. Now, initially, it was taken to the history department at Emory University, and the stone ended up in the possession of Brunel University in Gainesville, Georgia. Brunel? I don't know. The stone is supposedly engraved with a message from one of the colonists, Eleanor White Dare. And it was messaged to her father, John White, the man I was just talking about. It says, Virginia went hence unto heaven in 1591. Father, soon after you go for England, we came hither. On the back of it, it says, only misery and war resulted in the death of more than half of the settlers. Now, the engraving indicates that the remaining colonists were killed by savages, except for seven who were taken as captive. Now, the man that found that stone said that he discovered it about 50 miles inland from Roanoke Island, according to National Geographic. And this corresponds with White's accounts that the settlers had planned to move, quote, 50 miles into the main. And that's a big theory and also where archaeologists are looking now and have been looking for a number of years. They're trying to find proof that they moved inland 50 miles. They're also looking at the Croatoa Island that's supposedly just off the coast that the Native Americans inhabited. And that might be a good place to look now that we know about this stone. Now that this stone is getting press again, that might be a good place to look. If they took seven captives and they died on that island, we should be able to determine that they were Anglo-Saxon and not Native American. Now, initially, this stone was hailed as a major historical find, but a lot of the people in the universities started to question the authenticity of the stone, and more than 40 other engraved stones that subsequently surfaced and were purchased by that same university. Now, while the majority of these so-called dare stones are widely known to be fake, they really are, the first one, this stone that I'm talking about right now, bears a message from Eleanor White Dare, and historians are looking at it again and thinking perhaps they've known all along what happened to the colonists. Thankfully, they're taking a modern-day scientific approach to the stone itself, because reports that analysis of the stone by the University of North Carolina at Asheville in 2016 revealed that its interior was bright white, while its exterior and carvings were much darker, and that's important. And that's important because a freshly cut inscription would appear bright white on the stone, particularly so on this type of stone, and it takes a great deal of time for that whiteness to fade. And you got to remember, this stone was found in the 30s, so it would have been very difficult for somebody to use chemicals to mask that color back then. But they're also using new technology for spotting trace elements and isotopes, as well as ultraviolet and multispectral photography. So they're hoping they can unlock the mystery of this stone... And a comprehensive study of it is happening 
right now as we speak. So it's amazing to me that we've probably known what has happened to these people for almost 100 years. For just about 90 years, we've had evidence and proof. We've had evidence. We've had proof that they moved inland and then were slaughtered by the savages. It's a horrific end to the Roanoke Lost Colony, and I was really hoping that it would have a pleasant ending, that they integrated with the Native Americans, or that they settled inland and thrived, but it doesn't look like that was the case. Okay, from Roanoke, let's move on to something a bit more paranormal, and let's go right on to Area 51. Well, let's kind of get into Area 51, because if you want to get to Area 51... Actually, on the base, you either have to ride in a bus with blacked-out windows, or you can take an airline. And it's nicknamed Janet Airlines, and you won't find them on any Travelocity. These airlines don't technically exist. If it wasn't for the fact that you can see them taking off day and night from Vegas and other airports around the United States to Area 51 and other secret military bases... And you can hear the air traffic between them and ground control if you know how. All of those communications, you can hear it. In fact, you can see flight crew and passengers entering and and exiting the planes too. So before we dive into Area 51, let's talk about the main transportation to Area 51. Like I said, it's called Janet Airlines and it gets its nickname from a name that became widely accepted Once aviation enthusiasts discovered that these mysterious aircraft, which were based out of a small private terminal, and that terminal was codenamed Gold Coast, and it was on the west side of McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. Now, the use of the callsign Janet while operating in civilian airspace is how it got its name. The Janet mission, though, as far as I can tell, started as far back as the founding of, quote, Watertown Strip which you can find footage from the late 50s and early 60s that show the U-2 spy plane on a secret runway in the middle of the desert known as Watertown Strip. But that runway became Dreamland, sometimes it was called Skunk Works, or simply Groom Lake. But for this edition, it's also known as Area 51. The Area 51. The government have owned the land for years prior to this, but I can't find an exact date as to when it became a secret military base. And I'll be honest, I'm not surprised. I didn't find, I didn't expect to find government records that say, we bought this huge plot of land or eminent domain took this huge plot of land, this desert that nobody should have cared about, that nobody lived around except for one mining town, but we'll get to that. So I'm not too surprised I couldn't find an exact date. But anyhow, the airline started to grow in 1972. It's going to get a little technical for the next couple minutes here. And it it started with a single Douglas DC-6B aircraft. That followed by an additional DC-6B in 1976. These two aircraft served until 1981 when they were retired and replaced with the Boeing 737. A total of six 737s eventually joined the Janet fleet. From what I can find, of these six, five had been converted from prior services as United States Air Force training planes. Now, the six had previously flown for Western Airline before being transferred. So, anyhow, today, Janet Airlines includes a fleet of six white Boeing 737-600s. Those other Boeings were 737-200s in case you're really into airplanes. Now, the interesting thing about these planes are 
that they don't have any kind of markings other than a registration number and a single red stripe from nose to tail along the fuselage. In fact, if you Google Janet Airlines, you'll see picture after picture of these planes. In fact, one of them will be up on Facebook by the time you hear this episode. These planes exist. This airline exists. Now, it's when the Janet flights cross from civilian airspace into restricted military airspace that things get kind of interesting. So it's this restricted airspace that they go to and spend time there before taking off again day after day. Here's an example of a typical Janet flight. On takeoff from Las Vegas, Janet flights communicate with McCarran Departure Control using a call sign like Janet 210 or Janet 301. Once airborne, the Janet proceeds northwest and McCarran Departure hands them off to Nellis Control. Nellis Control of the United States government supervises the busy airspace across the southern part of Nevada. After checking in with Nellis Control, the Janet then continues into, quote, special use airspace, but not before Nellis Control approves a frequency change for the Janet. But the Nellis Controller never specifies which frequency for the Janet to switch to. And that's because the Janet already knows the new frequency. The pilots, the co-pilots, the crew already know the new frequency. In addition to the frequency change, it's a call sign change too. It's no longer Janet 210. It's now something else like Racer 25 or Bones 58. And those aren't ones that I made up. Those are ones that are actually in use that people have heard those call signs. Not surprisingly, all Janet aircraft are owned by the United States Air Force, registered either to an office at Hill Air Force Base in Utah or a P.O. Box in nearby Layton, Utah. While they're technically owned by the United States Air Force, the aircraft are currently thought to be operated by a division of AECOM Corporation. Now, AECOM, ACOM, is a publicly traded company, and it's one of the largest technical and management support firms in the world. I'm going to be a little bit more technical for just a second longer. Don't worry, we're going to get through this. Now, two of the subsidiaries of ACOM have connections to Janet Flight. The first of these two companies is called EG&G. And the other is called JT3. Now, EG&G was named after its three founders, Harold Edgerton, Kenneth Germahausen, Germahausen, and Herbert Greer. These names are important because these men were MIT professors and are widely known to be involved in the Manhattan Project. I got through all that technical jargon to get to this point. These men were widely known to be involved in the Manhattan Project. And if you don't know what the Manhattan Project is, it's going to be in an upcoming episode. Feel free to Google it. I'm already doing the research for you, though, if you just want to wait a little bit longer. All right, so there goes all the technical stuff. That's how most people get onto that base. It's either by plane or it's by bus. But what happens in and around Area 51? Here's what we know about just around the base. Just this year, a family had their land that they and their ancestors have owned since Lincoln was in the White House. Just in case you need a date, I'm talking the 1870s. These people have owned the land. Their ancestors have passed it down from each generation, from this generation to the next. They've owned this land since the 1870s, but this land overlooks Area 51. Not surprisingly, the government did not like the fact that this land overlooked Area 51, so it was taken by the government. Now, initially, the family were offered just over a million dollars and then $5.2 million for the Groom Mine, 
Remember I said there was just a mine out there back in the day? This is that mine. But they were offered $5.2 million for the Groom Mine and the surrounding land. But the family believes that the ore in the ground was worth more than that, so they turned down the offer only to have their land taken by eminent domain. The family, known as the Sheerans, have seen thousands of odd flying objects for years coming from Area 51, but don't talk about exactly what they've seen because they're, quote, decent Americans, honest Americans. This was the last line of sight land over Area 51, and now it's part of Area 51. Sadly, it doesn't look like they're ever going to get that land back, and sadly, it also doesn't look like I'm ever going to be able to stand on that land and look down at Area 51. And I gotta say, Area 51, going to it and seeing it, is something I've always wanted to do. And now, you kind of have a chance to do it. Because while I was at AlienCon, I spoke with a man that does tours around Area 51. Now, there are apparently a bunch of different tours, but this one is called the Area 51, the tour from Las Vegas. The man's name is Will Tryon, and his website is adventurephototours.com. If you want to email him for a tour, it's will, with two L's, at adventurephototours.com. Now, please tell him that you heard about this from Paranormal Almanac because I told him I'd be telling you guys all about this. I'm also hoping that he'll be excited to hear that I'm promoting his tours and maybe give me a tour of my own. Like I said, I want to go out there. I want to see what I can see. I also want to stop at the Alien, and I also want to hang out for a bit out there, but a tour as close as I can legally get to Area 51 sounds really intriguing. So once again, Area 51, the tour from Las Vegas, adventurephototours.com, email will at adventurephototours.com. He's not paying me to say this. I honestly just think it sounds like a good tour, and he seemed like a very nice man. Okay, so speaking of going to Area 51, if you try to get near it, you're probably going to be stopped by a couple of white jeeps, a couple of angry military men, and if you're lucky, they're only going to tell you to turn around and go home, or you might find yourself inside Area 51 in jail. But that's not as deep into Area 51 as I want to get. So let's get into Area 51, and our best possibly true tale of what happened came from a man named Bob Lazar. Now let me pause right here. I'm not saying I 100% believe Bob Lazar's stories. There are parts of his past that are sketchy at best. And the main part for me that makes me question Bob Lazar is his education and time at MIT. Now, Bob Lazar, when he finally did the story, and I'll get to the story in a little bit, but when he finally started telling his story, said that he graduated from MIT, he was an incredibly intelligent man. Here's the problem. Stanton Friedman the ufologist that you probably know about, was able to verify that Lazar took electronic courses in the late 70s at Pierce Junior College right here in Los Angeles. But at the same time, he was supposedly attending MIT in Massachusetts, according to Bob Lazar. Now, Friedman further determined that Lazar had graduated from high school in the bottom third of his class and that the only science course he took was chemistry. So... I'm just going to go out on a limb and say MIT was not chomping at the bit to get Bob Lazar into their college. So 
I do believe that Lazar lied about MIT. I don't know why. Perhaps he was just trying to boost his ego and say, look how smart I was. In fact, when Stanton Friedman went to MIT and asked about Lazar, no professors remembered him. He was not in any of the yearbooks, nor were there any records of him attending. Plus, Lazar couldn't even really remember the year that he obtained his master's, which seems very odd for a man with such great memory. So, like I say, I don't 100% know what to think about Bob Lazar. I should say right now, he's a hoax and forget about it. But there are things that have been since proven as true that Bob Lazar talked about years prior. So I just don't know what to think. With that being said, let's talk about the first time anyone heard about Bob Lazar or Area 51 for that matter. Up until this time, there were rumors and there were whispers, but there wasn't any definitive proof that Area 51 even existed. It was on November 11th and November 13th in 1989 when viewers at KLAS-TV in Las Vegas, Nevada saw news reporter George Knapp interview Bob Lazar. Now, Bob thought he was about to be killed by the U.S. government and wanted his story told before he was whacked. Now, it's since come out that he was probably either getting higher clearance, he was probably going to get scolded for talking to his girlfriend about his job at Area 51 and not killed, but Bob Lazar thought he was just about to get killed. He thought they were out for him, they are going to take him out, he had talked too much to his girlfriend. He might have talked to his friends a little too much, and they were going to take him out. So before they did that, he wanted his story known. So he told about a story of working in Area 51 and UFOs in bunkers hidden in the sides of the mountains. Here's the first one that Bob Lazar got right, because years later, remember this was 1989, years and years later, Satellite images would prove that these hangars existed right where Bob said they were, right where Bob drew it in on his little sketchy little map of Area 51. Now, Bob went on to talk about recovered UFOs that they had reverse engineered and created duplicates of or replicas of. He had worked in the S-4 section of Area 51, which was a corner of the Nevada test site. Here's another thing. S-4 is now proven to have existed as well. So that's two things that Bob Lazar got right in 1989. There, he had read documents indicating the existence of ongoing research on, quote, anti-gravity reactors for use in propulsion systems. And he was amazed, but he was about to get even more amazed because he was about to be shown nine flying saucers, flying disks, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, of extraterrestrial origin that were stored in those hangars. Now, as part of the gravity-harnessing propulsion, the craft used an element called Element 115 that was unknown on Earth. And that is because, as Bob said, quote, it is impossible to synthesize an element that heavy here on Earth. The substance has to come from a place where super-heavy elements could have been produced naturally. Now, they had this Element 115 from the recovered craft, and the U.S. government had collected some 500 pounds of this stuff. Now, let's pause here, because just recently, Element 115 was created here on Earth artificially, but who knows if it's the exact same stuff that Bob was talking about all those years ago, but it is very intriguing to think that we might have finally, with technology, constructed the element that Bob Lazar talked about in 1989. 
Now, Bob Lazar went on to talk about the sport model flying disc, which amplified the strong nuclear force of element 115, un-un-pentium, or UUP. Now, it used it to generate the gravity field for, quote, space-time compression. Bob also stated that the U.S. government had 500 pounds of this element 115 in the possession. The raw element 115 was given to the U.S. government at S4 by... And this is where it gets kind of sketchy for me, but by the Reticulan Extraterrestrial Biological Entities. Now, they gave it to them in the form of disks. Why? I don't know. Look, we know that the government has been talking to aliens and UFOs since well before 1989. It's very feasible that the aliens gave us some of their Element 115 I just don't like the whole reticulin EBE part of it because, in my mind, we haven't proven where they're from. But maybe Bob Lazar knew something that I didn't know. Obviously, he did. He's talking about it. So we'll move past that. Let's just say aliens gave the U.S. government another 500 pounds of Element 115. The scientists at S4 sent the Element 115 discs through Groom Lake to Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And they sent it there to be milled for use in the antimatter reactor. The Los Alamos personnel were told that it was a new form of armor, so they just simply followed orders, milled it how they were told to mill it, and sent it on back to Groom Lake. Now, Bob also talked about something that's not quite as amazing as UFOs and aliens and Element 115. He talked about flying in planes and riding on buses with blacked-out windows, things at that time that weren't proven, but now, if you just heard, are very common knowledge. So, the one thing I can say about Bob Lazar is that his story hasn't changed throughout the years, which to me is a good sign. He was telling the truth, in my opinion. If you're listening, Bob, I'd love to have you on this show to talk about what you saw, what I got right, what I got wrong, frankly, anything you'd like to talk about, because... If you're telling the truth, and that's a big if, there's not a lot of proof that you were there, even though you got a lot of things right in 1989 that weren't proven for another 20 years, if not longer. If you're telling the truth, you have an amazing story and firsthand knowledge of UFOs, us reverse engineering UFOs, making replicas or duplicates, whatever you want to call our version of those UFOs, and Seeing alien bodies, footage of alien bodies, maybe perhaps meeting an alien. Who knows? Have there been other personal experiences, you might ask? Well, yes, but none that talked about UFOs at the base. Now, before I get to those, I'm sure some of you right now are screaming, that's bullcrap, Kurt. Boyd Bushman talked about UFOs and aliens at Area 51. What about Boyd Bushman, Kurt? He was there and he had proof. He showed proof in the deathbed confession. There's a video. First, calm down. I can't hear you. This is a one-way communication, this podcast. You're listening to me on something that's already been recorded. So, shh, calm down. But yes, there was a man named Boyd Bushman, and he talked about working at Area 51 and seeing alien bodies and UFOs there. Well, here's the problem. Yes, Bushman was a real guy. He did work for Lockheed Martin, and yes, he held 25 patents regarding aero engineering. He was a very smart guy. Here's the problem, though. His deathbed confession video that's on YouTube that you can watch, 
also had him holding up pictures of a dead alien body that he said that he took a photo of, a Polaroid or an Instamatic photo of. This alien body was in front of me, took a photo of it at Area 51. Now, he swore up and down that this alien body was true, was real, was proof of aliens. The problem is, that picture is of a toy alien that can be bought at Walmart. So, sorry, Boyd Bushman, that destroys your story, your credibility completely in my eyes. If he worked at Area 51, and that's a big if, we know Lockheed, we don't know Area 51, if he did... The story that he talks about in his deathbed confession video on YouTube is riddled with lies. He also has a fake photo of a UFO, a known fake photo of a UFO that he shows in his little scrapbook of proof of Area 51 that he just happened to have lying around for all these years. Sorry, everybody. I cannot take Boyd Bushman seriously. There is nothing he said that has since been proven true like Bob Lazar or can be possibly proven true, not even remotely proven true. Sorry, Boyd Bushman is a fake. Now, there is a man. His name's James Nose, N-O-C-E, and he actually did work at Area 51 in the 60s, but he says up and down, he swears he never saw any UFOs. He saw lots of now declassified planes And he even has a couple of pictures from the base. They don't really show anything more than him in front of a couple of jets on a runway. But it's very interesting, and it is proof that he was there. He talked about the barracks. He talked about everything. But he says he never saw aliens or UFOs. Another man, Thornton Barnes, worked at Area 51, and he says he didn't see UFOs either. But his story is, quote, We did reverse engineer a lot of foreign technology. That includes the Soviet MiG fighter jet out of that area, out of Area 51. Now, even though the MiG wasn't shaped like a flying saucer, there were UFO reportings at that time, around those times, of different shaped UFOs. So this MiG fighter jet could be responsible for some UFO sightings in the area at that time. Thornton Barnes also confirmed underground tunnels... And he says that he worked on a nuclear rocket program called Project Nerva inside underground chambers at Jackass Flats, which is in Area 51's backyard. It's right there. He said, quote, three test cell facilities were connected by a railroad, but everything else was underground. So his story is kind of interesting because he's confirming some of the stuff that Bob Lazar also talked about as well. He also talks about a plane called the Oxcart which is a now-declassified military plane, and it had a very wide disc-like fuselage, and it was designed to carry vast quantities of fuel. Now, commercial pilots cruising over Nevada at dusk would look up and see the bottom of Oxcart whiz by at 2,000-plus miles per hour. The aircraft also had a titanium body moving as fast as a bullet, and it would reflect the sun's rays in what Thornton Barnes says, quote, would make anyone think... UFO. He's saying 100% we were testing some weird crap. If you would have saw that in the skies back then, you would think UFO for sure. And like I said, he did confirm what Lazar said as well about those hangars. So it's another one for Lazar in my book. But here's my theory. Both of these men worked there 
years before Lazar. Who's to say that it didn't take that long for our government to reverse engineer the UFOs that Lazar would work on? Who's to say that those weren't in some underground hangar being worked on, not flying yet, not test flying yet, because we couldn't get them to fly quite yet? Lazar was there in 89. These guys were there in the 50s and 60s. There's a gap in that time. It could make sense. I don't know. So for now, these are the best tales from inside Area 51 that we can confirm or kind of confirm in Lazar's case. There's a lot of people online that say they work at Area 51, that have been to Area 51, but have zero proof behind it. There's a lot of people that email and blog and go on Reddit that say they have relatives or that they work at Area 51 and talk about the wildest, craziest, coolest, fun stuff that I wish there was proof of. But sadly, as of right now, I haven't found anything that makes me think that there is proof that anybody else worked at Area 51 and anybody else saw UFOs that are willing to come forward about it yet. If I find something, I'll make sure I tell you guys about it right away. Now, sure, thousands have seen odd things in the sky above and around Area 51. And like I said earlier, if you get too close, you're going to be turned away by a white Jeep. So I'm not saying you should try that at all. In fact, I'm saying you should don't try it. I'm saying don't try it. Don't go to Area 51 trying to get in. You're not going to see anything. They'll shoot down drones. They'll take you to jail for doing drones over Area 51. You can see stuff by just getting nearby Area 51. If you're lucky, on a dark, clear night, you'll see some crazy stuff over by the alien. People go there all the time. People are there all the time, looking out for UFOs in the truest sense of the term, unidentified flying objects above Area 51. So, we know test planes and spy planes have been tested in Area 51. It's been proven. We know that Area 51 exists now. That's been proven. Finally, after all these years, Area 51 is proven to exist. We know it's an active military base, but to be honest, with the public being so into Area 51, knowing so much about Area 51, all the news stories, all the movies, all the TV shows, all the books talking about Area 51 and what might be there, the chances that they're still testing UFOs out of it, to me, are slim to none. Now, that doesn't mean they aren't testing jets and other cool, crazy stuff, but I don't think they're testing UFOs out of there. They have so many more secret military bases that we can't get close enough to that would be way more convenient for them to test UFOs or fly UFOs. I'm sure they've done testing them by now. So there are other bases just like Area 51. And I'll be talking about those bases in future editions. So, it's that time of the episode. What do you guys think? Did Bob Lazar ever work in Area 51? Did he reverse engineer UFOs? Were there ever UFOs at Area 51? Is that where they took the bodies after Roswell and the other early UFO crashes that I believe happened? We all know that they probably took the bodies to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But who's to say they didn't take the bodies to Area 51 after they were done with their little tour of the Air Force bases? It seems like for a little while there, 
It was common knowledge that we did have dead alien bodies in our possession. Our government had them, and they were showing them off to everybody in the military. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you really got to listen to every episode of Paranormal Almanac. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac.